Well, take your Bibles, please, and let's turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 18 and to the reading we had. We're going to be looking at the reading and beyond it into chapter 19 and verse 8. So you may want to keep your Bible open on your lap without your bulletin top, sneaking a peek at the bulletin as we go through the the passage. Absalom, this is the last time we look at this character in the story. I heard about one uh, young lady who said to our family last night over dinner, oh goody, she said, uh, tomorrow we get to hear about the famous hare once again. And uh, this is the last time that we're going to talk about uh, the hare uh, of Absalom. And I get a chance to do that little action. Absalom is your quintessential celebrity. He is famous for being famous. He's been the center of the story really since about chapter 13 verse 1 where he has uh, burst upon the scene as it were with a carefully sculpted celebrity. He's written his own narrative. Uh, He's marketed it tirelessly. He has played it out in a staged drama that won the attention of the masses. He has presented himself and preened himself into becoming the poster boy of Israel. Teenage girls lay in bed at night looking at posters of Absalom pinned to their wall. He he has so cosseted himself, so presented himself, that all that people know about Absalom is about the famous hair and even the weight of his hair when year by year he would cut it. Here is a man who is in love with himself, a self-promoter, where there is more form than content, more style than substance, more promise than reality. We learn from this chapter he'd even built a monument to himself and named it after himself, Absalom's Monument to ensure that he had a legacy to pass on to the future. During his carefully choreographed rise to power, Absalom has promised Israel the world. In rubbishing his father, in presenting his father's reign as an absolute failure, he hasn't bothered about marketing lies about his father's abilities. And he has carefully tried to show the nation that where his father failed, he would succeed. That where his father would not listen, he would listen. That where his father refused to act, he would act. That where his father could not lead, he would lead. In fact, he would give to every Israelite exactly what they wanted. He would give to them just what they pleased. He would give them everything that they longed for. They believed him. All Israel believed him and went out and followed Absalom. But you know it was all politics. It was all hot air. It was all smoke and mirrors. There was nothing real to it. And as we see his rise to power played out in the story of the Bible, we see We see it played out over and over and over again on the pages of human history. We are far too easily deceived by celebrity in our culture today. 
We're far too influenced by the picture, the image, the carefully crafted public persona. We believe anything. We're prepared to believe anything that we can see, that the media tell us to believe. We buy the lie. And the people of Absalom's day bought the lie of Absalom. They abandoned David, who is the Lord's anointed, and they followed the alternative, the younger, brighter, better-looking alternative. And the defection of Israel from David to Absalom was more than simply an act of political rebellion. It was an, an act of apostasy against God. They were leaving not any old leader or king to follow a newer, brighter, bonnier kind. They were leaving God's anointed king, the representative of the kingdom of God in their day and generation. They were abandoning God for Absalom. Well, once again, as we get to near the end of Absalom's story, we find that Absalom is once again in the spotlight. At least in David's mind he is. And so you'll notice in our reading, you will have noticed that repeated command that David gives to his army. Now it's going to be the final confrontation between the army of David and the army of Absalom. And what is on David's mind? Look at verse 5. He gives an order, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Or verse 12, uh, one of the men says to Joab, Do you remember, in the hearing of everybody, the king commanded you and the others, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. And then in chapter 18, verse 29, after his death, when someone comes to report the results of the battle, the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Here is the king preoccupied with this young man Absalom. Israel is in love with him. The king is preoccupied with him. Well, that's the introduction to the chapter. And in the chapter, there are three main characters that I want us to look at. The rebel, the patriot, and the leader. Look at them with me. First, the rebel. At no point in this whole drama, the story of this man Absalom, are we given any kind of information or indication that we should feel sorry for him? There is no alleviation of his story as it is told to us. Here is a man who instead of seeking justice for his raped sister, nurses his own revenge for his own political ends. Here is a man who is prepared to break the law of God and the law of the land by murdering the crown prince, his own brother. Here is a man prepared to stir up rebellion against his own father, to spread misinformation about his own father, to seek to have his own father killed, and who does not hesitate as an act of public defiance against his father to very publicly sleep with the harem of King David. Here is a man for whom there are no lengths to which he will go in order to establish his reputation among the people. And the scripture presents Absalom 
as an antichrist figure. Because in resisting David, he has lifted up his hand in anger against the Lord's anointed. That is the Lord's Messiah, God's anointed king. That means that Absalom is presented in the scripture as an enemy of God. Being the enemy of God's king, God's Messiah, makes him an enemy of God himself. Because God is represented, indeed the kingdom of God is represented at this point in history by a nation, by Israel. Just as today the kingdom of God is visible in the world in the church. So then it's visible in the nation of Israel. He is an enemy of God. And this should have been his brightest, finest hour. He's listened to the advice of one of his advisors and he has amassed an enormous army, larger than the army of David. He has uh, been persuaded that this would look good if he led the army into battle. And so there he is, dressed up in his prince's outfit, with his hair done specially that morning so that he looks well-groomed, well-dressed. He looks every inch the prince. His, his uniform, no doubt, bright with uh, hosts of, of uh, military insignia indicating great battles that he would have loved to have fought. But they just look good on his uniform. He's going at the head of his force into battle. This should have been the moment when the final work was done. David crushed. David dead. End of the story. Absalom lives. Hail Absalom, king of Israel. That was the way it should have ended. But his reign ends right here. It ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. As the story unfolds, David gathers his men together. He's been able to build up his army from the 600 he had. And now he has several thousands and he sets them all out in their tens and their hundreds and their thousands and he has commanders and he arranges them and he plans to go with them. But his men decide that he is too much of a national treasure for them to take into war. They say to him, look, if they killed us, they wouldn't, that, that won't bother them. But if they kill you, that will be the end of everything. Our men will just run away. They will know that they've been victorious. Anything happens to you, David, that's the end of the story right there. So we don't want you to come into battle. You'll just be a distraction. We don't want to have to worry about looking after the king. We want to just focus on the task at hand, which is defeating the enemy. So David holds back because his men don't want him to go. And the story of the battle is told quite quickly, briefly, in verses 6 to 8. They go into battle. There's a terrible loss that day, 20,000 men. The forest devours more people that day than the sword. It's a terrible uh, fight. But then somewhere in the battle, Absalom is separated from the main body of his men. It happens accidentally. It happens coincidentally. That area is on his own. And he encounters a force from David's army. Of course, you can't hide when you're Absalom. I mean, your face is in the posters that all the teenage girls have in their rooms. And everybody knew what Absalom looked like. I mean, the hair. The hair would do it. 
And there they saw him running to, coming towards them. And so they, they take chase and he turns his mule round and off he goes into the forest to hide from the ensuing army. And it's as he rides into the forest that it all happens. It happens so easily. It's an accident. It's unplanned. It happens suddenly. Nobody would have known. What a way for the story of this young man whose meteoric rise to power has been so public, so applauded, so popular with the masses. In a moment, there's humiliation. As the mule carries him into the forest, his head is caught in the branches. I think from about the time of Jerome, the incident with the head and the branches has been blamed on Absalom having a bad hair day. Well, it certainly was a bad hair day for Absalom because the hair probably got caught in the branches, but eventually his head is hanging there, caught in the branches. And there he is hanging, and there's his mule going forward without him. I mean, it's a ridiculous story, isn't it? It's ridiculous. You're going to want to laugh. I mean, what kind of way is this? Here's a man who's famous for his hair and his head. He's handsome looking. He's got great hair. There he is hanging by the head and the hair between heaven and earth. Between heaven and earth. Where is he going? He's right there. He's in a place of utter, utter helplessness. He's not on the promised land anymore. He's not in heaven anymore. He is being taken, as it were, off the earth. And there he is hanging, suspended. And his end is described almost Clinically, it's so impersonal. He says nothing in the whole story. He says nothing. He contributes nothing. He does nothing except get caught by the branches of a tree. And Joab takes his three javelins and he thrusts them into the heart of Absalom. And his men take him down and they bury him under a heap of stones. The end. You want me to say amen, sing the closing hymn, and go home? That's what you want, but that ain't going to happen. Not today. You see, what's going on in the story here? He's caught and he's hanging on a tree between heaven and earth. In the law of Moses, do you remember this? In the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, it says this, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The end of this man demonstrates that he is under the curse of God. His very end demonstrates this. Not only does his end demonstrate that he is under the curse of God, but his burial demonstrates this. Let me fill you in the background here. In the book of Joshua, for example, in chapter 7, Achan, a man called Achan, who has stolen stuff that he shouldn't have stolen, is stoned to death for his sacrilege and is buried beneath a large pile of stones. In Joshua chapter 8, the king of Ai, having been hanged on a tree, is thrown into a pit and covered under a large pile of stones. In Joshua chapter 10, five enemy kings have been put to death and hanged on trees and are then thrown into a cave and the mouth of the cave is covered with a large 
with a large series of stones. In other words, both in the way of his death and after death, in both forms, both in his death and in his burial, it is made clear to us, here is a man who is under the curse of God for his own sins. He is under the curse of God. So his death, you see, is not simply ignominious and inglorious. His death is the death of the curse. And that is the way, that is the end of all rebels who lift up their hand against God's Christ. That is how they will all end. All kingdoms that are raised up against the kingdom of God will ultimately end this way. In my grandmother's, life, my grandmother's lifetime, she saw the British Empire at the apex of its influence worldwide. Two-thirds of the world influenced one way or another by the British Empire. By the end of her life, it's just a little island nation, third-rate in the scheme of things. In her lifetime, there was a war fought that was to end all wars. It resolved nothing and was resumed 30 years later at enormous cost. In her lifetime, a little Austrian corporal spoke about a Reich that would last for a thousand years and within 20 years, he was lying dead in a bunker beneath Berlin's de devastated ruins. In her lifetime, a Georgian butcher becomes the leader of the Soviet Union. He murders over 40 million of its population, but his life ends in abject defeat and misery. And wherever they have risen, they have fallen. Wherever they have had power and authority in the world, they have come and they have gone. They have come and they have strutted their little time upon the stage, and then it has all come. To an end. Let me tell you, we started our service this morning reading Rome, 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The rebel meets his end. Secondly, in the story, a patriot can't follow orders. We spent, uh, we didn't spend very much time at the beginning when I was mentioning the orders that David gives to his people. They are ridiculous orders. Now here is an army going out to meet another army. It's a matter of life and death. And here is David saying to his army before they go into battle, he's saying to them, now you're going into battle. Would you be careful that nothing happens to the leader of the opposition? I mean, you're going headlong into battle. So what, what does this mean for the soldiers? What this means for the soldiers is they have to be watching themselves and looking around and making sure that the, you know, a stray sword swing or arrow doesn't land on this precious leader of the opposition. I mean, whose side is David on? Is he on their side or is he on the opposition's side? It's a ridiculous order. David isn't thinking straight. The order is they must not touch Absalom. So when a certain man, we read about this in verse 11, a certain man, one of the soldiers, he's unnamed, sees Absalom hanging from the tree. He sees him 
doesn't touch him, but goes and reports to Joab. And Joab is incandescent with rage. Look at verse 11. Why did you not strike him to the ground? I'd have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Joab cannot understand why the man didn't do his duty. Here is the enemy. Why didn't you kill him? But the soldier isn't intimidated by the formidable Joab. <clears throat> the soldier knows what politics inside the Jerusalem beltway are like. He knows this. Look at what he says here. Even if I felt in my hand, verse 12, the weight of ten of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and the other officers, for my sake, protect young Absalom. I know perfectly well what this is about. If I king killed Absalom, you'd be happy, but the king would be furious with me. By not killing him, you're furious with me. But this soldier knew even more than that. This soldier was really in touch with what, how, how things were in the Jerusalem beltway. Look at verse 13. If I had dealt treacherously against his life, and we all know that the king knows everything, his intelligence system is really good, nothing is hidden from him, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You wouldn't have spoken up. I mean, if I'd gone killed him and gone to the king, do you think you'd have come out and said, you know, it's all right, you know, you'd have just stand back, you'd have let me be the patsy, you'd have let me take the fall, you would have let me be the one that the king punished. No, there's no way that I'm going to kill Absalom. Well, this, this actually presses a button in Job's mind. Joab knows that that is absolutely true, and you notice how he responds to that. He says, well, I'm not going to waste time like this with you. No time for... Moral arguments, no time for political niceties. Joab is a doer. He is a soldier. He is a patriot. He has to take action. Action involves quick decisions. He does what he does best. He will walk over anyone and everyone who gets in the way of the kingdom. So he takes matters into his own hands and he kills the defenseless Absalom. In doing so, he is deliberately disobeying the word of the king. That's bad. But in doing this, he also has another word of the king, an, an order of the king, in fact, in his mind that the king gave before. The king's been inconsistent. Back in chapter 11, verse 25, when Joab had been responsible for obeying an order of the king and killing someone that he was ordered to obey, and then reports that to the king, do you know what the king said to him? The king said this, don't let this matter displease you. The sword devours now one and now another. In other words, this, this, this is what happens. It's warfare. People get killed in warfare. It doesn't, no big deal. Just so happened the person who was killed was the husband of the woman that he had committed adultery with. No, Joab here, Joab doesn't always appear like this, by the way, but he does here. Joab is acting like a patriot here. He sees that Absalom's survival would be a constant threat to the kingdom, a constant focal, focal point of dissent, a political lightning rod for future unrest. And later on, he's prepared to tell David that. We didn't read that bit, but if you read further on in chapter 18 to chapter 19, you'll see that he's prepared to say that to the king. You were wrong. This had to be done. I wonder if you think Joab was right to do what he did. See, we live in a complicated world. And especially when war is involved, it is a complex thing, isn't it? 
We are surrounded. We are surrounded by many dangers, many of which we're not conscious of. Our safe, happy lives are often preserved only because there are people like Joab who are ready to make the tough decision to remove the danger by any means. The people who have to make that call may wear a police or military uniform or may, may wear no uniform at all, but they have to make an instant call. You and I may want to debate the matter, but they have to decide the matter. Very often, without very much time, they have to make a decision, and on their decision lies our safety and well-being. Patriot asks because, acts because he loves his country. Liam Neeson, who's an actor, who named himself after me. Liam Neeson, oh, he's older than me, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he he's in, in a, a new movie called Taken, Taken 2. We went out to see it last night. It's really good. And uh, it's not as good as Taken 1, but it's, it's nearly good. But one of the things about Liam Neeson in those two movies is this. He realizes that, especially in the second one, I don't want to spoil it for you, but he realizes that unless he takes the action he needs to take, his family are going to be living under threat indefinitely. Indefinitely. They've come to get him, they've come to get his family, he has to act. He has to do what he needs to do, and he does it. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't take so much glee in this, forgive me. But he does it, and he does it decisively. Joe acts like that. He knows what needs to be done. And he does it for the sake of the kingdom. Well, the third person in the, in the drama is the leader. The leader. I've already said that David is wrong to give this command to his men. How demoralizing to say to men who are going out to fight the enemy of their nation and of their leader to be told, you know, uh, when it comes to this bad guy at the head, I, I don't want you to do anything to him. Deal gently with him. It's demoralizing. It, it undercuts the morale of the, of the troops. And I think that's why several times in the passage we're reminded all Israel heard the command of the king. All the men heard the command of the king. Well, after Absalom is dead, the, the, the big challenge is then how do we report this to King David? Because the young man Absalom is not dealt with gently. How do we report this to King David? So there's a debate starts. We, we didn't read that bit about the debate, but it's an interesting debate between Joab and a man called Ahamaz who wants to take the message to the king and to report the death of Absalom. This man Ahamaz is, uh, is uh, a Levite. That is, he's part of the priestly family. Joab is reluctant to send him because he's afraid that David will just kill him. And he doesn't want to do that because it's a noble family. And so Joab decides that he will send another man, a Cushite, who is not an Israelite, uh, belongs to another nation altogether, but has been fighting as a mercenary with them. He'll send him. He's redundant, really. If David kills him, that's not going to cause ripples uh, in the affair. So he dispatches this Cushite man to go and tell David the news. Meanwhile, are you with me? Amahaz, this other fellow, he keeps working on Joab 
He keeps saying, oh, please send me. Let, let me. let me go. Let me go. I really would like to go. I really, and eventually Joab collapses and gives in and says, oh, on you go. On you go. So Amahaz gets on the job. He's really enthusiastic. He manages to take a route that gets him to the king before the Cushite gets to the king. And he comes into the presence of the king and he says, look at this in verse 28. He comes into the presence of the king and he says to the king, all is well. All is well. And he bows down before the king with his face to the earth and he said, blessed, he even has a doxology, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. It's very spiritual, very good. So far, all is well. What's on the king's mind? The king answered, verse 29, is it well with the young man Absalom? Not how are my troops? How many did we lose? How bad was the battle fought? How is this young man Absalom? Amahaz, or whatever his name is, uh, he loses his confidence. <laughs> he was the one who wanted to tell David the news, but now he's standing in front of David. He doesn't want to tell David the news, and he says, well, you know, there was a lot of commotion, verse 29, and I don't know what it was. And he just buckles. Then the Cushite comes walking in. Oh, he, he, really, this man, he doesn't have any qualms. Look at verse 31. He came and he said, Good news for my Lord the King. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Verse 32, the king said to him, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And uses delivered. Delivered clearly. How will David respond? Will he respond as he did with Uriah, when Uriah's death was reported? Oh, there are always casualties in war. Collateral damage goes with the territory. Will he kill the messenger in a rage? Well, in the event, verse 33, David ignores the messenger. He ignores the news of victory. He's indifferent to all that. And he pours out his heart. Look what it says in verse 33. He was deeply moved. He, he shuddered at the very core of his being. He went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. We read the Psalms regularly in our public worship. You've read some of David's laments written with passions, passion, and eloquence. But there is no eloquence here. There is no eloquence here. You've read those laments and seen how he reflects on the sovereignty of God. But there's no reflection here. There is only deep, desperate distress and despair. There is no hint of hope, no light of joy, no happy memories. There is only wistful longing for what might have been. He cannot speak any words except his son's name. 
There is elemental grief of a kind that beggars imagination. Well, it's the grief, isn't it, of a bereaved father. Absalom was his son. All the past, good and bad, is all captured by that word, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. All the hopes and hurts focused in those words, my son, Absalom. All the regrets of a lifetime caught up in the, that expression, my son, my son, Absalom. You know what they say, men? When you get to the end of your life, you will never sit down in a moment reflection and think to yourself, I wish I had spent more time in the office. And as this father thinks of his son, perhaps he's thinking, I wish I had spent more time with Absalom. It's a bereaved father. He's a betrayed leader. For Ab Absalom represents the rebellion of all Israel. They'd gone out after Absalom. It's the grief of a burdened sinner. Because in many ways, the last few chapters of the book of David have been about the outworking of God's pronouncement in 2 Samuel 12 verse 10, where God said, the sword shall never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. First of all, there was Bathsheba's infant that died. Then there was his oldest son who is murdered by his brother. And now there is Absalom. And all of those deaths are linked in Scripture to the disobedience of the Lord's anointed, David. Now, I don't want you to extrapolate from that into your experience because you've had tragedies in your life. I don't want to extrapolate you to extrapolate that, that what has happened to you has happened because of some sin in your life or some failure in your life. Where we're not allowed to make that connection. This connection is made because of David's public position, his public role as the Lord's anointed. And it's revealed to us in Scripture, the connection. This is grief and loss over sin and over the loss of a loved one. But I want you to notice that loss and guilt for, over sin are no excuse for having a pity party. You see, the text has told us how David should have thought of the death of Absalom. The text has told us, verse 19, where uh, Amahaz wants to run and tell the uh, king, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered, literally freed him from the hand of his enemies. Or verse 28, God delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. Or verse 31, the Lord delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. What is it saying? This was the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's work. The death of Absalom Although there were soldiers involved in the actual killing, nonetheless, behind it all was God's plan. God was going to do it anyway. He'd have done it some way. Even though the soldiers hadn't been involved, God's will was to bring Absalom to justice and to bring him to death. And here's the king. He should have known better. He should have known better. 
He should have put his theology cap on. He should have been thinking, you say, that's hard to do when you're grieving. I know it's hard to do, but he's the king, for goodness sakes. He's the Lord's anointed. He's written all these psalms. He knows his theology. But at this moment, in his grief, he's not thinking like a man who knows his theology. He's not thinking about the fact Absalom represents Antichrist. This young man, Absalom, is not an innocent bystander. When those soldiers went out to war against him that day, it wasn't to find Absalom so they could put him into therapy. He had wanted David dead. If he had caught David, David would have been dead. There would have been no mercy from Absalom. David forgot his role, his duty. At this point, the kingdom of God has been restored. He's thinking only about his misfortune. Ralph Davis says, God gives no secure salvation to his church unless he brings decisive judgment on her enemies. Joab was right to come to David and to say to David, look, it's all very well to grieve for Absalom, but your men have been out fighting for you. Because all you're doing is howling and wailing and up in this room of over the thing. They're coming back with their tails between their legs as though they've been defeated and they're not wanted. In fact, do you know what he says? He says, uh, he says you know, you love those who hate you and you hate those that love you. These men love you. They fought for you. You get out there and you welcome them back as the people they are for the victory they've achieved and you honor those men who gave their lives for you. Joab was right to do that. And the king knew he was right to do it because the king goes out and does that. His concern was not about the kingdom of God but about his own grief. Now you see there's a story here about the death of uh, Absalom and the end of his little reign. And I said earlier that that is that the kingdom of God will triumph over the kingdoms of this earth. But in doing that, whenever you pray the prayer, deliver us from evil, you are praying, among other things, that the day will come when our king will visit judgment on all his enemies. On all his enemies. I know this is a nice touchy-feely era we live in. We just want to have our egos massaged. We just want to be told good things. We just want to be told we're all right, we're good, and all that rest of it. But what the Bible says to us is this. When Jesus Christ comes, you know what he's going to do? He is going to throw confusion and destruction on his enemies, utter destruction on his enemies. He'll do it. We won't do it. Our job is not to pick up guns or to strap on bombs or to go and murder people. That's not our job. No, we, we, we fight, but we fight with spiritual weapons. The Word of God is our sword. Prayer is our secret weapon. We, we work to demolish, not buildings and not empires, we work to demolish arguments. We work to overcome the arguments of, of a world that is in opposition to God. That's our job. We, 
We're not, it's above our pay grade to do it, to lay a hand on any of the Lord's enemies. It's the king's business to do that. And when he comes, when he comes in Revelation 19, when he comes at the end of history, what does he come as? He comes on a war horse. He comes to demolish his enemies finally and completely. Let me wind it up like this. Here is Absalom hanging on a tree under the curse of God for his own sin, pierced as he hangs on the tree, buried under a mound of stones. Divine judgment. Here is the reverse of Absalom, the Antichrist. Here is the Christ hanging on a tree between heaven and earth under a curse because the curse is on all those who are hanged on a tree. This curse he is under, he is under not for his sin but for his people's sin. Here he is hanging, he is pierced. Here he is taken and put in a tomb and a great stone blocking the entrance to the to the tomb. Judgment in both cases. A curse in both cases. Hanging on a tree in both cases. The piercing in both cases. The burial under a stone in both cases. In one case, for his own rebellion and hard-heartedness against God. On the other case, acting on our behalf, acting as our Savior, acting as our sin-bearer, Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. It took Joab to go and persuade David before he would go out and show himself as the king again. It took Jesus no persuasion, but it took the power of God to raise him from the dead, to go back to his men and show himself alive after his passion. With many evidences. The end of Absalom is the end of all the enemies of God. The triumph of Jesus spells the end of all the enemies of God. He must reign, says Paul, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Are you trusting in King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please write your word on our hearts, a solemn word. Nonetheless, a reminder that all of history is of a peace. Nations may rise, kingdoms may rise, kingdoms may fall. Nations refuse to heed God's call, but the word of our God endures forever. Your kingdom stands and reigns forever. And we pray that the day would come when the Lord Jesus would appear. Our hearts cry to you, Father. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Take the power and reign. In his strong name we pray. Amen.